Once you go across that initial 5,000 foot bridge, you land on one of our artificial islands and then you dive beneath the surface of the water. Uh, in the existing tubes, you go down about 100 feet. With our new tubes, you'll be going down 173 feet down to the very bottom at the lowest point. And that's putting you about 120 feet below the water there. So you'll have about 120 feet of earth above you. This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. Infrastructure Junkies, today we have a great episode that we've been wanting to get to you for over two years. Good news. Today is the day. I'm Dave Arnold. I'm Kristen Short. The bridge that goes underwater. What do we mean by that, Kristen? Well, Dave, you know I'm from Texas. I don't think that's really possible here, and I think you know that. I'm talking about the Virginia Department of Transportation's largest construction project ever with a budget totaling $3.8 billion. Billion with a B? Billion with a B. It's one of the largest infrastructure projects in the entire United States. Okay, you're talking about an underwater bridge with a budget of $3.8 billion with a B. That's right. I'm going to need to hear more. Well, I need to give you a little bit of background. The Hampton Roads region of Virginia is comprised of seven cities. Most of them are on the coast. All of them are waterfront. It's an area with a population pushing 2 million people. And to get from one of those cities to the other, frequently you have got to cross water. Some of the bodies of water are actually very large, and it's not such an easy undertaking. But guess what? We also have significant maritime traffic. We've got the Port of Virginia here in Virginia, which uh, is one of the largest on the East Coast. We've got the United States Navy. So you can't simply block shipping lanes by building bridges. We have this thing called the Bridge Tunnel. Okay, Dave, but why don't you just build like really tall bridges so the ships can go under them? Well, I don't exactly know the answer to that, but it probably has something to do with a thing called an aircraft carrier, which move freely throughout Hampton Roads. Those are pretty big. They're pretty big. How about a little trivia? I love trivia. Can you name the seven cities that comprise Hampton Roads, Virginia? I think I can. I'm going to give it a try. Virginia Beach, Mm -hmm. Norfolk, which I think I said like a Virginia person, not a Texas person. Thank you very much. Suffolk. Hampton, Chesapeake, Newport News, Portsmouth. Woo! You got it. You've got it. But to compound matters, two of the largest cities in Hampton Roads, which are Virginia Beach and Norfolk, there's not really a direct route to the rest of the world through Richmond and D.C., and the best route from Virginia Beach up to that part of the state is through the cities of Hampton and Newport News. Now, those two cities, which are also parts of Hampton Roads, are over a large body of water. And we have a Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel. We already have a bridge that turns into a tunnel. But anybody who lives here knows that it couldn't handle the traffic, and it was always a pain to get through there. So who do we have to talk to us about the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel Expansion Project? Well, we are so excited to welcome Ryan Bannis to our program. Ryan Bannis, P-E-C-C-M, joined the HRBT project team in March of 2023 to oversee the daily management of the project's delivery. Bannis, an associate vice president at HNTB Corporation, moved to the Hampton Roads region in 2011 and has managed programs involving a variety of infrastructure systems, including board, immersed tube, cut and cover tunnels, 
movable bridge construction, and complex urban interchanges. From career inception to present day, he has led and or played an integral role in high-profile undertakings along the East Coast with budgets between $133 million to $3.9 billion, and that is with a B. Formerly of Maybe, Michigan, Bannis holds a degree in civil engineering from Case Western Reserve University. He was recently recognized by Virginia Business in its Hampton Roads Power List, as well as its Virginia 500 Most Powerful and Influential Leaders. Ryan, welcome to our program. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today and speak about the project. We're sure glad to have you here. Let's just dive right in. Ryan, as I mentioned in the intro, there already is a Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel. And we are going to face a little bit of a challenge on this show because we don't really have visuals. This is a podcast and it's not on YouTube. So it's kind of hard to describe what's going on. But let's talk a little bit about the history of the existing Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel. Can you tell us when it was constructed, kind of what it took to get that done, and the purpose of that construction? Absolutely. So the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel is an extremely unique facility. Prior to its construction, and the original construction was done in 1957, uh, VDOT operated a ferry system between the peninsula and the south side of Hampton Roads, or what we now know as Norfolk. But back in 1957, when they decided that the need was significant to increase throughput in that area, VDOT undertook at the time cutting-edge technology. So the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel, the original facility, was the first bridge tunnel constructed between two artificial islands in the world. So we had cutting edge technology back in 1957. And as we talk a little bit more today, we're happy to share with you about some of the cutting edge technology that we are currently using today. So after that 1957 construction, VDOT did such a great job there in the early 70s, they decided to do it again. So at that time, following the construction in the early 70s, we were left with two two-lane tunnels, one going eastbound, one going westbound, that connected the cities of Newport News and Norfolk. Now, let's be clear. Just, again, people might have some difficulty visualizing this. You call this thing a bridge tunnel, and I drive through them all the time, and as do you, as does all of us from Hampton Roads. But if you're from Kansas, you're probably saying, no, what, what are you talking about? What do you mean a bridge tunnel? Well, I'm from Texas, and I don't know what a bridge tunnel is. Is it under the water? Yes, absolutely. So our bridge tunnel is unique in the fact that it starts out on land. As we approach the water, we go on top of a bridge. So if you were leaving Hampton and heading towards Norfolk, you would get on top of a bridge that would carry you about 5,000 feet. At that point, near the navigation channel, and that's where those aircraft carriers that you mentioned before go through. And also, we have 8,000 regulated ship movements through that channel every single year here in Hampton Road. So it's not just the Navy, it's the port facilities that we also have here, along with the deep water ship repair facilities. So that's something extremely unique here in the Hampton Roads region. So once you go across that initial 5,000 foot bridge, you land on one of our artificial islands, and then you dive beneath the surface of the water. In the existing tubes, you go down about 100 feet. With our new tubes, you'll be going down 173 feet down to the very bottom at the lowest point. And that's putting you about 120 feet below the water there. So you'll have about 120 feet of earth above you. As you emerge on the other side, you've gone about 8,000 feet at this point, down underground, underwater, and then popping back up on our next island, our South Island, closer to the Norfolk side. You jump up back on that island, and then you travel about a mile and a half down to the Willoughby Spit. So we call it a bridge tunnel because it's just that. You start out on a bridge, 
you go through a tunnel and then you happen to end up on another bridge before you hit land again. Oh, I'm so glad that we asked that question. You explained it because I have been in some of those tunnels and I always imagined when you're in the tunnel that you're in a tube that's like sitting on the bottom of the water. I didn't realize it went under the ground under the water. So you're pretty far down there. Absolutely. You know, in the original construction of the 1957 and the 1970s tunnel, those are what we call immersed tube tunnels. So the best way to describe those are think of a 350 feet long concrete pipe. And that pipe was fabricated in a dry dock. We put temporary bulkheads on the end. We floated it down the bay. And once we got it near its final location, we went down and we dredged from the water, just like we would dredging any shipping channel. Once that dredging was done, we had a nice little channel. We then immerse our tube down on the bottom. You do that 10, 11, 12 times, however long it takes to connect those tubes. And then you backfill earth over top. So the original tunnels, uh, again, are about, a, about 100 feet down. You've got about a 30, 40 foot structure, 10, 15 feet of fill, and then you've got 50 feet of water above you before you get to the surface, which is just enough for our aircraft carriers and the heavy commercial ships that go through here. They draft anywhere on the order of 30 to 40 feet. However, what's really exciting about our new tunnel is we're using different technology than it's ever been used here in Hampton Roads. We're actually now building what's called a board tunnel. And that is via the use of a tunnel boring machine that rather than dredging a nice channel, it is a vertical drill. So imagine what you'd put on the end of your drill at home if you're going to poke a hole in the wall. Imagine a big drill, but it's 46 feet in diameter. What? 46 feet. So you guys wow. emphasize that B on the billion. We're talking 46 feet in diameter. And that allows us to drill down into the earth and in parallel to our existing tunnels, create this new tube. So for these tunnels, we are a little bit deeper, and that's because we're staying underneath the bottom of the bay. Being from Texas, this might be a hard analogy for you, but I, I grew up in Michigan. So digging in a snowbank, if you dig too shallow, it's really easy for the roof to cave in. But if you dig down a little bit deeper, that roof has some structural integrity to it. And that's what we try to do. That's why our new board tunnel will go a little bit deeper. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you'll have about 100 feet of earth between you and the water above Wow. Okay, Ryan, uh, I know Kristen has a question, but just for the visual here, because this is all audio, there is already in existence, which was built either in 1957 or the 70s, depending on which one it is, there's a bridge heading from Norfolk and Virginia Beach going over what body of water? That right there would be the Elizabeth River, but really we're at the confluence of, of the James River at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. Okay, and so you've got an existing bridge that then goes into a tunnel, so all the northbound traffic goes over the bridge, through the tunnel, and then back up on a bridge and pops out in Hampton. Simultaneously, you have a bridge coming from Hampton heading south, where you go over the bridge, down through the tunnel, and back up onto a bridge, and you pop out in Norfolk. And the two tunnels are parallel to one another, so that the shipping traffic goes over top of two existing tunnels. Do I have it right? I've driven through it a thousand, literally exactly, a thousand times. You have it exactly <laughs> right, and I think you put it in right-of-way terms versus that engineering jargon that I get caught up in all the time. <laughs> okay. All okay, right. and before we get too far past what you said about the construction of this, you talked about the concrete tunnel segments. So they come float out, and then you talked about submerging them. So when they're submerged, are they filled with water? How do you get them so down? When we, so when we submerge them, it's a really unique process. So we do it in two ways. Uh, first, we can add temporary concrete blocks to the roof of those tunnel segments mm -hmm. as we go to immerse them. The other technology that we use is we will build temporary pools inside. We'll go in, build big bins with pool liners, and fill water to the point to where they're no longer buoyant, mm. and they slowly 
settle down onto the bottle. So it's a very controlled process. It's a very meticulous process. We did this back in the 50s. We did it in the 70s. In totality, we've done it 10 times here in Hampton Roads. I had the pleasure of doing it at the Elizabeth River Tunnel back in 2010, 2011. And it is an extremely unique process, not done everywhere. And I will tell you, the engineering that goes into it is quite amazing. To see segments placed to that precision, we're talking within half, three quarters of an inch tolerance on the bay bottom. Wow. It's quite impressive. Wow. My follow-up question to that was, with the new technology now where you're boring, is it still going to be where the tunnel segments are made on dry land and then they're brought in? And where do they come from now with the new technology? So we're going to be really in the world of tough visuals <laughs> this explanation. But no, so it's totally different technology now. So in the use of a board tunnel, very different than one 350-foot-long piece that's already shaped like a tube, we build rings. So as mm. we drill, if you can imagine just like it, it's a concrete ring that is made up, each one of our rings is made up of nine concrete pieces. Those concrete pieces are assembled in a perfect ring behind our tunnel boring machine. And that is how we create a liner. So each ring for us is about six and a half feet wide. Mm. So much smaller when you compare 350 feet in one shot and you place that into the tunnel with immersed tube tunnel construction, as opposed to board tunnel construction, where you're really caterpillaring along building six feet, eight inches of tunnel at a time. As you're boring, like you're boring and building and boring yes, and building. Okay. Well, boring and building. Yeah. As, as long as that machine is digging every, as she's boring and progressing forward, we're building those rings sequentially behind her. And we actually use those rings. That's how we push ourselves forward is by applying pressure to those. That's how we advance the machine across the bay. And we say oh. caterpillaring because it's very similar to that. It's you build a ring, you push off of it, you build a ring, you push off of it. So you're moving in that inchworm caterpillar fashion across the bay. Uh, our two tunnels, the ones we're building, will be 7,940 feet. Uh, each of those will be that long. So we're doing that, if you break it down, a little bit less than 1,400 times per tunnel as we cross the bay. And in this new project, very similar to the existing condition, we're building two new additional tunnels. So it's not just one, we're building two new tunnels. So ultimately, as you cross the Hampton Roads Harbor, you'll have four tubes. Each tube will carry two lanes of traffic. So you'll have four lanes in each direction, eight lanes total. Ryan, I have a question for you. This is really, really complicated. And as we've already covered, this is really, really expensive. You had two perfectly good bridge tunnels already going across this body of water. Why did we need to spend $3.8 billion to put two more in there? Well, I think you, you hit the nail on the head when we were speaking it a little bit earlier, and that was the 2 million residents that we have here in Hampton Roads. Uh, not only do we have 2 million residents, we also have a ton of tourists that come to this area throughout the summer that make their way down to our beaches. We're a thoroughfare to get down to the Outer Banks. So not only did we talk about those residents, uh, we talked about the Navy. The Navy is another massive contributor to the population here and also helped drive the need for this facility. So here in Hampton Roads, we have 15 military installations more than 80,000 active duty military members at any given time. We're also the largest container port on the Eastern seaboard. So with those two existing facilities, well, that sounds like a lot, four lanes of traffic going underneath our Harbor. When you take into account the freight that we move, the military service members that we move, the residents and all those visitors, it's just not nearly quite enough. So the ultimate goals of our project are to increase capacity across the Harbor, help people get from A to B, 
ease congestion because if you travel this corridor now, anytime in the afternoon, you know you're probably going to be slowed down going through. With those two yep. lanes, we really do bottleneck down I-64 on either side. If you're coming from the Hampton, you're going from four lanes down to two. If you're coming out of Norfolk, heading up that way, you're going from three lanes down to two. So there's that constant bottleneck. And then the last thing, the other thing that we're really excited about is enhancing our travel time reliability. So that's just not how many vehicles we can put through, but it's how many vehicles we can put through reliably. And that really plays into how our project, the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel Expansion Project, is going to be part of the larger Hampton Roads Express Lanes network that VDOT is currently in the process of building. That network will take, will have 46 miles of continuous express lanes that will take you from Jefferson Avenue up on the peninsula up there in Newport News, drop you all the way across the Hampton Roads Harbor down to the Bowers Hill interchange and allow you to have a reliable travel time free if you're HOV2 or pay a fee and you can arrive on time just by yourself. So it's a really, really complex need why we have all of these additive features that make Hampton Roads so great add up to this, but also really comes down to the quality of life for folks in our area. Well, I have friends and colleagues in Virginia and there's always, you know, what time are you going to be there? Oh, it depends on the bridge and the tunnel. It's, I, I know that's a big problem in that area. But let me ask you, you might have figured out by now, Ryan, that I am not an engineer. So I'm going to ask the dumbest question. You're going to probably think it's real dumb, but I really do want to know the answer to this. This is so complex. It's so expensive. It sounds like just incredibly difficult. Would it have been possible to just build a really, really tall bridge? It's always possible. We can always build bridges. I'm a bridge engineer at my heart, but no, it would have been really challenging in this area. One, as it was mentioned before, because of the amount of ship movements we have. And when you're building a bridge, you are over that shipping channel constantly. So you have to be very mindful of those movements coming in and out. And as you might expect, our friends over at the Navy, they really don't like to tell us on a predictable basis when they're going to be moving ships oh. and destroyers and submarines through the area. The other thing that makes bridge construction of that height really challenging here in Hampton Roads is the geology. We have some pretty, pretty poor soils here. You have to remember back thousands of years ago, the oceanfront was really rich, man. We were all bay bottom. So that we have a lot of sedimentary deposits here that aren't the greatest to found foundations on to make those really tall structures. And then the last challenge you have, anytime you're landing one of those massive bridges, it takes a lot of roadway to build up to that elevation. You don't just do it in a very short amount of time and shoot straight up at a 45 degree angle. You really have to lay that back. And when you look at the challenges we have here, we have the Navy down on the Norfolk side and they have a lot of property and they're very partial to that property. You don't want to share it with too many folks for good reason. And then also up on the Hampton side, we have uh, the VA hospital, and we also have Hampton University. So two partners that have been around for quite a long time that we want to make sure that we're respectful of their property, respectful of their boundaries, and allow them to continue to operate as they have for several, several years. Ryan, you hit on two very, very important things, and they hit very close to home. I'm a lifelong resident of Hampton Roads. And the first thing you hit on, people don't normally think of this, like the importance to the economy of free-flowing traffic. And in this case, not just automobile and truck traffic, but maritime traffic. It's key to the economic vitality of the mid-Atlantic region and really to the country because the Port of Virginia is located here. But my point is the second thing you said was quality of life. True story. I graduated from law school at William & Mary in 1992, and I was interviewing initially with law firms out of the state. And so their first question is, why do you want to leave 
Virginia. And my stock interview answer was, well, you see, Hampton Roads is connected by a series of bridges and tunnels, and I sit in traffic too much. But because of projects like this, it's completely different from how it was in 1992. So hats off to you guys. Hats off to you guys for having the vision and for executing this. I can't even imagine the undertaking. Well, one thing I'd like to add to is I've been a Hampton Roads resident since 2011 when I first moved down here from Manhattan. And every job I've had the pleasure of working on, the most exciting thing, the most rewarding part of it is when that job is done and you open that new capacity to see the backup you drove by every day on your way into work or on your way home from work, to see that just relieved instantaneously overnight. And this project will put every other project I've done in my past to shame for that. The other thing that you mentioned too was the quality of life for all of the residents here. And I can tell you, we hear so many stories about people, you know, myself included, that I want to go up to Hampton on the weekend to go enjoy something with my family, but you're going to have to worry about sitting in traffic. I have a three and a half year old at home and we went to the Langley Air Show earlier this year. We got caught in 30 minutes of standstill traffic at the HRBT. Even project directors get stuck in. We have no, <laughs> we have no secret button or gate we get to use to go around. So that quality of life is paramount. And that's really why we're here doing what we're doing. And all of this goes back to, so how was that enabled in that quality of life that was really enabled by our local partner here in Hampton Roads? So one thing that facilitated all of this was the foresight of, of our government here in Virginia. And that was establishment of the Hampton Roads Transportation Accountability Commission. So that happened, I believe, back in about 2013, 2014. And the result of that was the state passed a seven-tenths of a cent sales tax here on every dollar spent in Hampton Roads. That money went directly to the HR TAC, that funding partner of ours, where they held it. And that body consists of locally elected officials. So think mayors, different folks in local politics that get to decide on a regional basis. And we like to say on projects of regional significance on how to spend that revenue stream. This project is one of the recipients of that money. So not only if you've lived in Hampton Roads, you know you've appreciated the expansion of the peninsula projects going back towards Richmond, that widening we've done from two lanes to three lanes. Uh, that's been life-changing, being able to get up middle of the state a lot faster. The Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel, we're absolutely enabled by that same thing. So the people who are paying these taxes are the same people who are going to benefit directly from that money that's being spent. And to know as a, as a taxpayer, when I go to the grocery store, that little bit more that I'm putting in the pot is going to make my commute up the peninsula that much easier. Absolutely is a huge change in quality of life and one I'm really happy to be a part of the solution end on and implementing. This episode of Infrastructure Junkies was graciously sponsored by Pendulum Land Services, a company headquartered in the Hampton Roads area of Virginia, just where you'll find the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel Project. And it's open for business throughout the Mid-Atlantic region. Now here's what you need to know about Pendulum. The company was founded in 2020. It's SWAM certified, and it's DBE certified as well. But do you know why Pendulum came to be? You see, the principals of Pendulum collectively agreed that the industry had become too inefficient, and too many projects were going to condemnation unnecessarily. Their primary objective at Pendulum is to do it right the first time and use their experience to keep parcels out of condemnation. In fact, they pride themselves in what they call the practice of condemnation mitigation. Who else do you work with that can say the same thing? 
consider Pendulum Land Services as a subconsultant on your next project. You can find them at PendulumLand.com. PendulumLand.com. I have another question. Like as you're explaining these things, I'm thinking about them and then I'm, my non-engineering brain has questions. So when you're talking about when this is done, we've now got four tunnels with two lanes of traffic in each, four lanes one way, four lanes the other. And so when I'm driving and I'm going to go across one of these bridges, is it like traffic roulette? Do you choose which tunnel you want to go through or will it, will you like, is it like, oh man, I went through that one yesterday. It was terrible. Or is it like you just kind of get sifted into one? How is that going to work? So no, we're going to eliminate driver confusion to the best of our ability. We don't want to put anybody <laughs> in that position, but how we're actually going to mitigate that is we mentioned the Hampton roads, express lanes network, and that's really the crux of the solution here. So two of those lanes in each direction will be that high occupancy toll lane, just like we have up in Northern Virginia. We have a little bit of the other parts of the state, parts of the country. So the tubes that sit towards the middle of the facility, they will be that you will have decision points along the approach as you're coming from Newport News into Hampton, as well as when you're leaving Virginia Beach, going to Norfolk as you approach. So once you actually get on our bridge, you'll already be committed to which tube you're going to be going in. And again, if you're HOT2, so two people in your car or more, that'll be free if you're in the HOT lanes, or you can pay that fee. But ultimately, we eliminate that driver decision point by pushing it much further back so that as you're driving across the harbor and looking at those aircraft carriers going by, you're also not trying to pick out which lane you're going to merge into. Well, as a resident of the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I tell you, I play traffic roulette all the time. It's like, do I want to take 183 or do I want to take 820? Oh, and you just did is flip a coin because one of them is going to get you. A couple of logistical issues, Ryan, that we want to cover. Number one, the length of the project. When you add together the total length of bridge and tunnel, how much is it a mile? Is it 500 feet? Like, how big is this thing? So, when you asked earlier about why this is so expensive, that's one thing to consider in this. And we're nine miles in length. So, we talk about being the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel Expansion Project, and everybody wants to talk to us because tunnels are fun, tunnels are cool, right? That's how you end up on the top of the engineering food chain. You become a tunnel engineer. Uh, but, but the reality is we're doing a heck of a lot of bridge work. We're doing a heck of a lot of roadway work, nine miles in totality. So break that up. You've got a couple billion dollar projects just by the bridge work we're doing. So of that nine miles, keep in mind 8,000 feet. So a mile and a quarter, that's tunnel. Then you've got about another three miles of trestle or bridge that goes across the bay. Again, that is going to support that eight lanes of traffic. So right now in Hampton Roads, that existing capacity, while we're not replacing the existing tunnels, all of the bridges that lead up to the existing islands are being replaced as a part of this project. That's for two reasons. One is resiliency. We want to get those a little bit higher out of the splash zone. And two, it's also going to help us with our traffic configuration as we go to those decision points that we spoke about earlier. Then when you jump onto the Norfolk side of the project, so if you do that math there, about three miles of bridge and a mile and a quarter, you got about another five and a half, six miles of roadway widening down through that highly urbanized area there that runs from Willoughby Spit down to Patrol Road or almost the 564 interchange. So nine miles in totality, just a small part is the tunnel itself, but we'll get it to you. It's the coolest part. What, what, <laughs> before you started the project, what type of traffic count was the existing bridge tunnel seeing on a daily basis? Do you know that? I do. So actually, it's really interesting when you look at the statistics over time, and that's one thing I've challenged our staff with. And if you look back where we were in back in 19... 
57 when we were originally opened. Yeah. On a daily basis, the HRBT facility saw about 8,000 vehicles a day. So not that bad. That's like most of your, your major thoroughfares going through a neighborhood with a turning lane. I think most roads with a turning lane down there may have that. Today, we're putting almost 100,000 vehicles through this crossing on a daily basis. Wow. Uh, daily? So daily basis. Dang. So one of the things that I found really cool was as we're out here on our project right now, removing some of this infrastructure, you know, every once in a while, I take a deep breath and I get a little nostalgic and we were pulling down one of the existing trestles. And I said, this thing was built in the 19, you know, 1950s. How many vehicles did this carry throughout its lifetime? Yeah. So we're still doing the math, but we're getting pretty close. And we think it's upwards of 800 million vehicles cross these bridges since they originally built back in the late 1950s. Wow. That alone, I was hoping it would be a billion because bees are cooler. Bees are cool. But 800 million, that's pretty cool to say too. Well, before the original bridge was built in 57, obviously you weren't driving cars over the top of the water. What did they do? Or did they just not go that way? Well, I think it was two things. So as we mentioned previously, there was the ferry system that was in place. And that is a way that folks cross from one side to the other. So the, the residents of Hampton Roads were used to having that water crossing available to them. But as you can imagine, you were really kind of a destination. You weren't just coming here on a Tuesday afternoon to go grocery shopping and run to the mall. You were going to do it as a trip or as a life decision to move down to this area. So the throughput back then, I don't have the counts on those ferry traffic back in the day, but it was significantly less than the 8,000 vehicles a day that we initially saw right after the opening of the facility. Right, right. Well, I think this is a good time to play a little game because we're talking about ferries. Dave and I were very recently on a ferry in your home state of Michigan. So we had the opportunity to go to Mackinac Island for a professional event, and it was Amazing. Blew my mind. So we're going to play a little game. I want to make sure you're okay with this. It's called Over Under Push. We play this a lot on Infrastructure Junkies. And basically, it's where I'm going to give you three things. And for each one, you're going to tell me whether it's overrated, it's underrated, or eh, it's a push. It's just aptly rated. Are you in? I'm in. Okay, here's the only rule. When this you're is, Ryan, this is terrible. This mute, is terrible. Mute yourself. Mute yourself. When you're done, I will let you know whether or not your opinions are correct. Okay. So okay. Okay. who's I'm, laughing I'm in the background? <laughs> okay. So we're going Michigan. We're going Michigan items for uh, over under push. I'm going to tell you the three items and then you're going to tell me whether they're overrated, underrated, or it's a push. Your first item is Detroit. Detroit is totally underrated. It has seen so many changes since I graduated high school back in 2008. It is coming back. Great place to be. Great place to take your family. Good food. Good Polish neighborhoods down there, hence my last name. So I would say Detroit is underrated. You know, before Kristen tells you whether you're right or wrong, I want to add a little bit of commentary here. We had some very good friends of ours who live in Ann Arbor. He's an appraiser and his wife. They gave us a lift up to the ferry from the Detroit airport. And then they had to, they had to bring us back when the whole thing was over. And so I asked him on the way back, I said, David, let's talk a little bit about Detroit. It's got a pretty bad reputation on a national level. Is that... Is that justified? And he's like, absolutely not. And he starts going through the things which you just mentioned and talking about what a wonderful place Detroit is. But then he continues to talk for the next half hour about all the things that are screwed up about Detroit, like the school systems. So 
With that all being said, and Kristen, I think you've been to Detroit once in your life, and that was to pass through the airport, maybe twice. Well, twice, because I arrived at the airport, then I left from the airport. I've been to Detroit twice. That doesn't count, probably. I will say my experience in Detroit was the airport, and it was lovely, and it was clean, and it was easy to navigate. So I think you're right. Underrated. I'd love to know more about the rest of Detroit. But yeah, you're right. Correct. Good job. You're one for one. All right. All right. Congratulations. Your second item, the Upper Peninsula. Don't get me started, my Uber friends. The Upper Peninsula is truly the superior state. Uh, I did grow up in southeastern Michigan, so I can't claim to be a Uber, uh, but it's like entering an entirely different world up there. Going across that bridge, you get in the right mindset as you go across the Mackinac Bridge, and it is it is God's country up there. I absolutely love the UP. I love the smoked whitefish dip, and you get some pasties when you get up there as well. So don't forget that we start pulling in some of that other good food. Michigan is a lot of delicacies in the state. I had a pasty in Mackinac Island. I didn't know what it was, but I asked the server and she explained it to me. And I was like, oh yeah, I'll have that. And it was delicious. I thought they were talking about pasties. And I'm like, I what think, in the world? I can't. I, I think don't that's know what, what that I said. Is. I said, well, I tell me about a pasty. And then I was like, is that not right? She's like, no, that is not correct. So Ryan, tell our listeners who are not from Michigan, you the people who are from the Upper Peninsula are called uppers or oopers. Youpers. What's Youpers, the opposite of a youper? We're called trolls. <laughs> and explain why. Trolls. Because we're beneath the bridge. <laughs> right. We live beneath the bridge. But my youper friends, so to make it clear, it's Y-O-O-P-E-R. They do consider themselves the superior state. They think that they should be a, a separate state unto themselves. I think they would struggle a little bit there. But yeah, the, the UP is a great place to go. If you love to be outdoors, it is really tough to beat. A lot of great engineering schools up there in Mackinac Bridge, Mackinac Island. I mean, those are really hidden gems of the Midwest. Very few people recognize how beautiful Mackinac Island is. Okay. So did you say overrated or underrated or a push? Oh, it's totally underrated. I mean, it's, you're two for alone. two. And you've got some really good headwear. You can get a good Uper hat when you're up there. I mean, it's <laughs> tough to be. You're two for two. And I haven't been all the way to the Upper Peninsula, but I got close at Mackinac and everybody that talks about the Upper Peninsula rave. So yeah, oh, he's two for two. All right. Last but not least, Mackinac Island fudge. Ooh, that's a tough one for me. You know, I am a sweets guy. I think there are better things to be had at Mackinac. I'm going to call that a push. I'm going to call that a push. I know I'll have some friends back home that will disagree. My my mom, for one, she will disagree. She loves the Mackinac Island fudge. It is very good. But, I mean, again, the smoked whitefish dip, you can't go wrong with mm. that. And I would take that over Mackinac fudge any day. But it is very high quality, so I call that a push. Ryan, you were doing so well. You have failed us on this last one. It's actually <laughs> overrated, as is all fudge ever on the planet. Because it's just sugar, and then it makes your stomach hurt. But uh, you were close with the push. You were close. But yeah, yeah. Uh, shout out to Mackinac Island and to Michigan. We had the best time there. It was so beautiful, charming, and just I felt like I had gone to another world. It was incredible. And just a quick shout out to Chapter 7 of the International Right-of-Way Association who hosted us on Mackinac Island while I taught a class and Kristen did a presentation. Beautiful, beautiful part of the country. If you haven't been there, you are missing out. So thanks for playing along, Ryan. You did two, two out of three ain't bad. Yeah, almost nobody gets them all. You you knew this was a setup, right? I mean, you, <laughs> I I know. I just I just hope I don't create too many enemies back in my home state. Oh no, no, it's a magical place. <laughs> so we're going to transition into our next topic, but I want to preface this part of the discussion. I'd like to talk a little bit about 
whether property had to be acquired to undertake this expansion. I do want to be very clear that we're not going to talk about any specific parcels of property because things are still kind of ongoing. So none of our questions are geared towards that. I just want to say that at the outset. And listeners, if you're wanting to hear about that, too bad. (laughs) So the tunnel goes through the bottom of the river and the bridge goes atop the river. Did you have to acquire any right-of-way for this? Oh, we did. You know, thankfully for the project, and I and I think that this is one of the reasons a project became viable with this regionalism, as we like to call it here, when we got all of the seven cities involved, all of our other member communities of HR Tech, the Hampton Roads region, and brought them on board. That's always a concern. Uh, specifically, when you're going through somebody's backyard, you have property owners like the Navy. Uh, people are very particular about the property that they have. Specifically here in Hampton Roads, there's not a lot of room to spread out. We're surrounded by water, so we only got so many places to go. Thankfully for us, compared to earlier concepts uh, of this project that were envisioned back in the late 90s, and even as recently as 2010, the project and VDOT did a really great job at minimizing the amount of property that needed to be taken for this project. So we have three parcels that were really impacted by this project. Thankfully, two of them only on a temporary basis. There was another piece of property that VDOT did procure. So as the agent of the project, we do own that property. Now it's there at the end of Willoughby Spit, and that will be returned to our local regional partner, HR Tech, at the end of this project for whatever reason or whatever purposes they see fit. So whether it be a park or they decide to develop that piece of property, But throughout the project, one of the things, a lot of painstaking efforts to go in, and if you look at our concepts for the project, is that we take off our new facilities, our new bridges take off from the same footprint that our current bridges do. So we're doing a significant amount of staged construction. So rather than build one wide bridge all the time, we're building parts of it. So when you go onto that new trestle in a temporary configuration, you may only have two lanes and no shoulders. That allows us to then demolish the existing bridge, build those new shoulders. So it does make construction a little bit longer, but allows us to not take property. And that's something that's really important for VDOT. It's really important here in Hampton Roads. The two temporary construction easements that we have, one of them is just over top of some existing fishing piers. So pretty minimal impacts there, which we're very proud of. And the other one is a temporary construction impact that is less than a third of an acre. So when you think about a $3.9 billion project, in a highly urban area where we're, we're choked for land, we've got no more to go around, to think that we've only had to buy one piece uh, that wasn't developed and have temporary impacts on two others, that's pretty amazing. That is amazing. And that makes me think of another thought that I've had is the, the river bottom. When we're talking about those tunnels on the river bottom, I'm assuming that the bottom of the river belongs to the Commonwealth of Virginia and the dirt hundred feet below that, does that belong? Is that an easement? Do you have to get a permit? Do they just go, hey, you guys are, we're all Virginia. We're all friends. Just put your tunnel wherever you want. What's that process look like? So for us, and this is where I'm going to defer to the right-of-way professionals if I get this wrong, but because we are within uh, Virginia, that is Virginia right-of-way. So we were able to go down in, in Miami at Earth. One of the interesting things about not only just from a right-of-way perspective, but from an environmental perspective I mean, talk about going through that dirt. So in all of our other tunnel projects to date, as we dredge that material, we create those channels for our immersed tube tunnels. We're able to dispose of that earth, that dredge, that bay bottom material out in the open ocean or at permitted facilities throughout the Chesapeake Bay. But because we're actually digging underneath the ground, we're not dredging. 
uh, we are excavating all of our material from our TBM requires it to be disposed of uplands. So a lot of folks say, hey, Craney Island right across the harbor here in Hampton Roads, uh, we're not able to use that because we are excavating that material. So yes, as we went through and did this construction, the right-of-way permitting, we were within VDOT right-of-way going across there. It is uh, Commonwealth property. Uh, a lot of permitting requirements, as you can imagine, between the Corps of Engineers, Department of Environmental Quality, the MRC, then some other agencies here throughout the Commonwealth. But no, no right-of-way takes were required to go beneath the water and beneath the bay. Well, that leads me to my next question. You know, we've done episodes on a lot of uh, infrastructure marvels, like the L.A. Aqueduct and the Brooklyn Bridge and the Hoover Dam. And those were built so long ago, and the process was different, and there wasn't a lot of people concerned about what it was going to do to the climate or how many people were going to die. I'm thinking there's probably a big difference now versus in the 1950s when that first tunnel was built. But my question is, specific to this project, is... Was there any pushback from any entities about what this would do to the environment, what this would do to marine life, what this would do to the floor of the rivers? And is there any kind of mitigation that goes along with that? I'm not aware of any pushback at the time, but I will say there was concern. Anytime you're doing work within the water, specifically here in Hampton Roads, there's always concern about being good environmental stewards. And I'll say as a conservationist myself, I hunt, I fish. We want to make sure that what we're doing here in the short term doesn't have negative impacts or ramifications for our children. I want my son to be able to go out and fish around the HRV Key someday. Um, so some of the unique features uh, of also being here in Hampton Roads come down to the animals, the, or the, the mammals, the birds, the fish, uh, the turtles that we interact with. Uh, so uh, one of our biggest concerns or an item that was identified early on for us uh, was that the South Island of the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel is home to Virginia's largest colony of colonial nesting birds. So that had many different kinds of birds, but colonial nesting birds love the South Island for one reason or another. So in, in partnership with the DWR here in Virginia, we established three, two or three barges off to the side of the facility that were covered in sand that allow the birds to go and nest there undisturbed. Because as we have the South Island as our hub of activity for us as we're mining. We use that as a launch area. We bring a lot of construction materials there. We wanted to give these birds a nice, quiet home to go over to. Uh, to aid in that, to make sure the birds understand we mean business, we actually use border collies that run around our islands. They have booties, glasses, safety vests of their own. And those border collies, their job is to discourage the birds from nesting on our island and encouraging them to go somewhere else. And what's more convenient than a nice barge floating above the water with a nice sand deck that would make a wonderful nesting habitat. Well, so, you've got to you've yeah. got to explain that. You, but do you do they go out and have talks with the birds, or what do they do? They bark at them. <laughs> so they're they're border collies. They do what border collies do. They like to herd them. They're pushing them down towards the water. But ultimately, as you can imagine, you've got a, a nice, friendly, four-legged friend running around. No bird wants to stay on the ground too long for that. We're also very, very cognizant of not giving them good habitat to build nests on. So a lot of the island, we paved specific parts of it temporarily during the project so they didn't have dirt or grass to nest in. We also make sure that debris is picked up. Believe it or not, debris, one, birds want to build nests. Two, they want to eat. So if we don't give them reasons to be around or places to be, they're going to go find a home <laughs> nearby. And thankfully, these bird barges are only about 100 yards away from the existing island, immediately adjacent to these barges. And a really cool piece of Hampton Roads history, as you go through the region, is Fort Wolf, which is right off our South Island. It's an old, I believe, Civil War era fort there 
we took out some live oaks. And again, that surface of that island was covered in sand. So the birds call that home. So from April until September, there are birds everywhere, but thankfully not too many of them on our islands. That is unbelievable. And I'm so impressed to hear that that was taken care of and so much thought was put into that. And I will tell you what, when we did our episode about the Brooklyn Bridge and about the yeah, Hoover Dam, yeah. there was no talk about like, what about the birdies? So that's a huge element of this project that I wouldn't have even thought of. That's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. And you know, Ryan, this area of Virginia, well, all of Virginia is very historical vis-a-vis the rest of the country, but there's a lot of history to the Commonwealth of Virginia and the Hampton Roads area. Have you all run into any historic artifacts during construction or during excavation? Anything good? Did you find any booty buried beneath the surface? (laughs) We have found some really, really interesting artifacts on the project, and a few of them come to mind. So again, as we are dredging out here in Harbor, and we mentioned Fort Wolf, right, an old armament, Another thing that's unique to us here in Hampton Roads, we mentioned all those Navy ships coming and going. So it's not uncommon here in Hampton Roads for Marine contractors as they're out dredging in the bay to come up with unexploded ordnance. That is something that contractors are used to finding, something that we anticipated on this project. But the kind of munitions that we may have known may be here, but is always fun to find, was Civil War era cannonballs. Yes. To date on the project, we have found five Civil War era cannonballs, the largest being 90 pounds. um, And one of them, which was detonated. So thankfully, with having all these great military institutions, installations around us, we have a great partnership with our friends up at uh, Langley Air Force Base, who came down and helped us handle those Civil War era cannonballs. One of them had to be detonated. Not much fanfare, don't get too excited. And we actually have a couple of those here on the project uh, that we like to show off from time to time. So Civil War air cannonballs. And remember, right, Monitor Merrimack, the battle of the ironclads yep. back in the day, that, that's not hard to fathom down here given we had those instances going on. Right. We've also found from what we believe back in the World War One, World War II era, some military helmets. We found those during dredging. And probably one of the more recent, more exciting things alongside cannonballs, which are pretty fun, was out as we were doing the North Island expansion. And that area there, we were up against the existing island doing some stone removal so that we could expand our island there to receive our new tunnel, right? We have to take that bridge out to the island and dive down. As we were dredging down, we found what we believe was an old deck barge. And on that deck barge, it was carrying a quarried rock going out to Old Port Comfort and Fort Wool. And it also had some cattle on it. So as we've been digging on the project, not only have we pulled up, This barge from about uh, 1820s era was what we've had it dated through a study with William and Mary. They've been a great partner and and helped us understand that. We found the barge, we found some granite, and we've also found some bones from cattle as we've been going through excavation. So nothing like driving home at six o'clock at night, the kids in the backseat and saying, hey, Ryan, we found some bones. We think it's a cow and and (laughs) trying to, to sort that out to make sure that we don't hold up the contractor longer than necessary. But those are just a few of the items we found here. And and it really makes this project exciting and unique because you never know what you're going to get. I mean, with that barge, for instance, we were able to go back and look through newspapers that talked about a storm that came through and how a barge was lost. Then here comes along William and Mary. They can go back and date some of that material that they pulled up off the bottom. And you start to piece together the history that makes Hampton Roads so unique and so interesting and, and adds a little bit of flavor to our project. Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay. So once this expansion project is done, what will the new structure be able to accommodate? I think you said right now there's 100,000 cars that go back and forth every day. What's the capacity going to be when it's finished? 
So the capacity when we're finished will be enough to handle what VDOT is looking at here and over the next 40 years. That's what we're looking at, at long range planning. Ultimately, our facility is designed to last 100 years, but we expect to be able to handle all of the throughput that we're currently seeing, as well as increased demand for decades to come. I will say those traffic predictions now at the date and time we're in do get more complicated as we start looking at EVs and alternate forms of transportation. But VDOT is planning for the future. So not only do we accommodate current capacity, we also accommodate that additional capacity for decades to come. And when is this going to be done? So right now our contractor, they are under contract to be wrapped up by the fall of 2025. Uh, But as you can imagine, with a large complex infrastructure project like this, we have experienced some challenges. So right now we're running more than a year behind schedule, but VDOT in partnership with our contractor working together every day to look at opportunities to expedite that time frame and bring this infrastructure online as quickly as possible. Well, last question, I think. When it's done, is there like a grand opening or you get to be, you know, there's a caravan of the first people to drive through it. Do you bust a bottle of champagne? What happens when it's done? Is there a party? And can I come? <laughs> if there's a party, well, there we're there. will be a party. Uh, I will tell you that'll probably be the first night that I get a full night's sleep without thinking about work for a while. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, I can only but imagine. I would imagine that there will be quite a bit of fanfare. You know, I've worked on other projects up in Northern Virginia, the Woodrow Wilson Bridge. I think they had a contest for the individual who had the best horror story of crossing the Woodrow Wilson Bridge. He was the one that was allowed to push the plunger to detonate the explosives to to demolish the existing bridge. Maybe we do something similar down here. I'm not quite sure, but I know that it'll be a huge celebration. We are uniting South side and the peninsula, right? We're, We're uniting Norfolk and Hampton. We're continuing to make Hampton roads even more viable area. And one of the things that we look at too, we're, we're opening up areas up on the peninsula as you go towards new Kent and the other side of Williamsburg and towards Richmond, all those communities now that really can't have residents work down in Hampton Roads because you can't afford to sit in tunnel traffic for half an hour a day. We're opening up those communities to come down and be a part of our our local economy here. So there will be a heck of a celebration. There are going to be a lot of people there. We will work to get you guys on the short list. Oh, Oh, thank you. Well, I think this is a project worthy of celebration. We'll be looking for it. Before we wrap up, Ryan, I wanted to thank two people. Like I said, we've been working for a couple of years trying to make this episode happen because this project's been going on a while. I want to thank Virginia Agello with our law firm who worked together with Brooke Grow of the Virginia Department of Transportation to bring you on the show and coordinate all this. I really appreciate all that they did to make this a possibility. And Ryan, thank you so much. I know how busy you are. I can Well, I can only imagine how busy you are. But thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. Thanks, Ryan. Well, no, it was an absolute pleasure to be here today. And I will say I have one ask for this team, if I may, before we leave. I do this anytime I speak to the public because it is, it is near and dear to, to me and all the people that, that work on the project. As you're driving through our project and all the other work zones throughout the state, my only ask is remember you're driving through somebody's office. So we ask you to slow down, put down your phone, focus on the road, and drive safe. Amen. Appreciate you having us. Amen. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan.